that's one of the things that we seek to do in our practice, and I believe we we have succeeded, is we are educators and we educate our clients so they are empowered and informed and they understand why. And they can pull themselves off the ledge in most cases because they're like, oh yeah, now I know if I ate that, I felt terrible. So there's not so much static in the body that they're completely confused. Welcome to the Longevity Blueprint Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Stephanie Gray. My number one goal with the show is to help you discover your personalized plan to build your dream health and live a longer, happier, truly healthier life. You're about to hear from Terry Cochran and learn why glyphosate, amyloid, and mycotoxins are dangerous for you and why chicken is the dirty bird. This is going to be a super intriguing conversation. Let's get started. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Your Longevity Blueprint podcast. Today, I have Terry Cochran on as a guest. She's an integrative practitioner and thought leader in sustainable health and longevity. She's the founder of the Global Sustainable Health Institute and has developed the Cochran Method, which integrates a multi-level bio-individualized metabolic health modality. Terry specializes in complex health conditions. She also serves to maximize the human potential in ballerinas, professional athletes, and Olympic hopefuls. She has a private clinical practice in the Metro Washington, D.C area. She launched her groundbreaking and an Amazon best-selling new release book in 2018, The Wildatarian Diet, Living as Nature Intended. Terry received her Bachelor's of Science from the University of Florida and an advanced degree from Huntington School of Health Sciences. She's also trained in craniosacral herbology, healing touch, and is a certified coach practitioner. Terry has also spent nearly 20 years as an executive for a Fortune 500 company. She believes longevity starts in the womb. And I love that because I mentioned that in many of my episodes that aging and longevity truly start in the womb. So welcome, Terry. Thank you, Stephanie. So good to be with you. Tell our listeners your story, your journey into doing what you do. Well, I believe that when um, great uh, dissonance happens in our lives, there's a greater purpose. And so, as you mentioned, I was in uh, the corporate world working for one of the largest financial institutions in the country, running, running a business unit for them. But my first born, um, by the age of three, we were told to expect uh, brain seizures, he, not to grow past five four. He had life-threatening asthma. He wasn't talking. He was barely walking. And it was a journey of first trying to think about how we might accept this diagnosis, but being a Cuban refugee and having a solution-seeking matrix instilled in me, I started thinking about, well, what if there's another way? What if they didn't quite fully understand the why behind his condition? So I had my day job and my night job was trying to figure him out. And fast forward at the age of 10, he was doing a lot better. People were calling me Dr. Terry at work. I was getting more questions in my office around why is my child having bleeding eczema than you know how to how to uh, risk manage a deal. So I decided to leave that career and go back to school. And this was in my early 40s. And now fast forward 15 years later, we're celebrating our 15th year of my company, and we really developed a methodology that is truly, at, I believe the forefront of sustainability, sustainable health, and longevity. Awesome. Well, what is the wildatarian diet? You wrote this book, and obviously that has to do with the sustainable health model you've created. So it has a catchy name, the wildatarian diet. So that to me, 
if I hadn't heard of this, I would think, okay, you're eating wild game. (laughs) Tell us the benefits of that. Like, what is the wildatarian diet and how is this different and important to longevity? So what's so interesting is the wildatarian diet falls under the umbrella of my methodology, which is the Cochrane method. And this diet is really eating to your genetic blueprint and your current state of health. And what I've discerned over our research and the clinical outcomes in my practice is the tenets of the wildatarian diet also involved protein, sulfur, and fat malabsorption. And the underlying or the underpinning beneath that is that in the protein scenario, we have found, and the clinical research proves it, and so do our clinical outcomes, that due to the crowding conditions within which we raise our animals, chicken being the most affected, is that the crowding conditions is now creating an environment for truncated protein structures to be created in the tissue of these animals. And these truncated protein structures by the name of amyloids are indigestible in our body. And studies from Cambridge in Japan show that they are responsible for contributing to over 80% of what's going on in our country from an autoimmune perspective kidney disease, cancer, infertility. So it's a really big deal. And we found that when we go to wild game or um, wild fish and shellfish or non-mycotoxic legumes and vegetables and fruits, then we can really help mitigate the reactivation of pathogenic loads. And so what we found through our practice is that and also in the clinical literature, is that these amyloids were actually reactivating viruses and building biofilm. And biofilm is that which protects many of our pathogens, such as candida and strep and staph, and even the spirochete of Lyme. And so by mitigating and minimizing the amyloids through the dietary process, then we were finding that actually we were resolving Hashimoto's and Bell's palsy and polycystic ovarian syndrome as a result of not creating a feeder system for these viruses and other pathogens. So that's a mouthful and that's very complex. So to break this down, <laughs> you're in what you're trying to do, it sounds like, is avoid the proteins that are higher in amyloid like chicken, which you call the dirty bird. So when I think of amyloid, what immediately comes to my mind is amyloid plaque in the brain, which causes dementia. So I, I do associate the word amyloid with bad for my health, not good for longevity. <laughs> so I think what you were saying is that chicken specifically has very high amounts of the of amyloid, right? So which kind of like, whoa, but <laughs> most individuals, especially some individuals who are trying to lose weight, they think chicken's a good a protein, leaner protein to consume if they're trying to avoid red meat for their cholesterol or whatnot. You know, they may think that they're they're choosing a better protein by consuming chicken. But it sounds like you're saying the chicken that are not pasture raised, that are more grown the commercial raised chicken are the ones that are going to have the highest amount of amyloids. So what if you have chickens in your backyard? Are they still going to have higher amounts of amyloid? Well, that's a really good question. And so what, what we do also know is that genetics are passed now generationally. And so if you have heritage farm birds, that's a different story than even if that chicken is raised in your backyard, but its mother was a hen chicken. 
So we have to go back and really find out the lineage of that chicken because it is these DNA is being passed through generationally. Do we know how many generations or we don't know at this point how far? What I can tell you is that I had a story which is really interesting because these amyloids will also affect glucose metabolism of a gentleman who had osteomyelitis, which is a bacterial infection that leads your bone. He's also a type 1 diabetic and he could not resolve his osteomyelitis. Well, within a month of working with us, his osteomyelitis was better, but he, has, he had dropped his use of insulin by up to 90%. And his blood had dropped from like 400 to 120. It was really miraculous. And he had a one meal of chicken and his blood sugar went up by 250 points for four days. And he thought, well, that's just really weird. Let's try it again. A month later, he tried the same thing. The same thing happened. So, you know, we have a direct corollary there. And we have many other anecdotal incidences such as that, that really speak to the detrimental power of the chicken. And I believe that Dr. Mercola recently came out with some information around chicken that it's also really high in omega-6, which is an inflammatory acid. Other studies point that it breeds E. coli, you know, that it really starts reactivation of E. coli linked to so many UTIs. Wow. And candida live together, candida being a fungal infection, and candida, or candida being a fungal organism that went overgrown can really mess with our brain because it affects our mental health through affecting the dopamine channels. So you unpacked a lot a few minutes ago. So we first, for you first introduced how amyloids are bad and they're fine in our chicken. And then you transitioned a little bit to mycotoxins and really choosing the lower mycotoxin. I think you were alluding to grains. So are you saying that the chicken are eating the, the grains that are loaded with mycotoxins and thus the or make that connection for me. So chickens are primarily fed corn. 90%, over 90% of the corn in the United States is genetically modified. So we have that interruption, first of all. But then the way that corn is stored is that it has a mycotoxin, which is a fungal metabolite. And these mycotoxins, I call them fire starters, were creating and building biofilm. And what the research shows and what our clinical outcomes prove is that the biofilm will create amyloids and the amyloids will build biofilm. And so they're having this nice little ping pong match fortifying each other and we're losing. And so, for example, peas are considered a mycotoxin, a green pea. And a lot of people try to manage, you know, a healthy lifestyle with eating, consuming pea protein before they work out. And that could be just regulating your insulin. Peanut butter, I call it the devil on steroids, because that is a high oxalate food, which we'll talk about in a minute in the problems with oxalates. But it's also an aflatoxin. So it is a mycotoxin of grand proportions. And it's high mold. And so that is really a problem. And you know, we've linked in many cases peanut butter tied to diabetes. We thought, you know, something that it's supposed to be a healthy protein and a good fat is actually potentially tripping you into type 2 diabetes because if you've had strep in your background, these mycotoxins can reactivate strep antibodies, which then has been clinically proven to just regulate insulin Wow. So you were, you were also alluding to just viruses getting reactivated. You Again, you unpacked a lot. So I just want to break this down for the listeners. So I, I think what you were saying was that viruses can use 
or hide in, do they hide in the amyloids or they hide in the biofilm? So they can hide in biofilm, but viruses actually are being reactivated by the amyloid proteins. Okay. Viruses thrive in protein, thrive in protein. And viruses do hide in certain of our organs. Hashimoto's, the autoimmune version of thyroid dysfunction, hypothyroid dysfunction. There are some studies that prove over 80% of that has been linked to the Epstein-Barr virus, which is the monovirus. Which you may have been exposed to years back, but then you're saying you eat these foods and essentially the virus gets reactivated so then it can contribute to this disease? Absolutely. And what I found personally, and it was really interesting, Stephanie, as I was writing the book, all of a sudden I went from being completely healthy to non-functioning overnight. And what I learned through the process was that I had seven viruses reactivate in me due to stress. And Epstein-Barr was through the roof, cytomegalovirus, parvovirus, varicella, zoster, HSV-1, and I had liver damage. I had brain swelling. I had complete neuropathy. They thought, what was really interesting, they thought I had Lyme because the cytomegalovirus, and there's clinical literature for that, can prove to have a false positive in the Western blood in certain strands of Lyme. And so they were treating me for Lyme when in fact it was And so now I actually look at Lyme through the lens of the virus because this virus, even if you do have the Lyme bacteria and its it's co-infections, they're also being fed by this phenomenon. Sure. So how did you know you had all these viruses? Did you have a blood panel run with antibodies or how did you know? I did. We do. I also have my own method of applied kinesiology. So within my office, I was testing for those viruses. And then when I had the blood panels done, oh my goodness, my IgG, Epstein-Barr and all the others were in the hundreds. So it was a reactivation. And I actually not only had IgG, but I had IgM, which was an active. Wow. Which is really, everything just got really turned on. And very interesting phenomena. But once once I was able to understand what was happening and really went wild and went for a while, I actually had to go. And this is what I love about the wild vegetarian diet. It's, I call it equal opportunity because you can be plants, you can be sea, you can be land, you can be combo platter. It really speaks to what is your body needing right now? And with my liver being so del- in such a delicate place, I actually went vegan for a little bit so I could bring those liver enzymes down. But what was so fascinating, Stephanie, is once I figured it out within two weeks, my liver enzymes went from 400 to 30. Wow. And, you know, that in, in wow. old clinical literature is like, is not happening. That, that right. possibly can't happen. But we, you know, we have the evidence there. So that really helped inform the writing of the book. I was literally living through what the food supply and stress can do to to a body and then how quickly recovery can happen when you start giving the body what it needs. And I want to tell our listeners what their bodies need. I want to get to how you do eat, but I want to stay on the problem for a moment here and talk a little bit more about mycotoxins. And then I want to get into glyphosate before we get to the solution, right? (laughs) So let's go back to mycotoxins. Can you, for the listeners just so that they can kind of scrutinize their their current diet list for them, the food groups that are going to be the highest in mycotoxins. So you mentioned peanuts, of course. What other foods are going to be high? So 
mycotoxins or anything that can uh, live in or be a part of a mold containing organism. And so mushrooms, you know, mushrooms are being deemed to be, you know, so immune modulating, yet any client of mine that has strep or candida or any kind of aspergillus, I really just don't give them any form of mushroom, whether supplementally or in a food form. We have peas, the green pea. Peas are legumes. Legumes tend to be a high, high mold. So those mycotoxins that then build aspergillus, which is a mold, can set off, which is really interesting. So we have the mycotoxins, which are the corn, the peas, the peanuts, soy, of course. We have green beans. We have actually even Brazil nuts are high in mold. Pistachios are high in mold. Berries can be high in mold. Grapes are high in mold. You know, when it grows on it, cantaloupe, actually. Well, of course, wine from the grapes, yeah. <laughs> and coffee, yeah. And coffee, that's why it's so important to do that low mold, low acid coffee and the unsulfur, you know, no added sulfite great wine to your repertoire if you're going to consume wine. So those are all part of that mycotoxic family. And then what's so interesting is that oxalates will make, they feed aspergillus in a state of a high mold. Some of the foods you mentioned, the legumes are going to be high in oxalates. So which legumes are you okay with? Which are you not okay with? How do you recommend they be prepared? Let's talk about oxalates. Oxalates, <laughs> what's really interesting, and we may want to then move into the, to the why and why the oxalates are problematic right now. But before we do that, oxalates are contained in really healthy foods such as almonds yeah. and black beans and spinach and Swiss chard and berries. And so what's happening is we're having trouble breaking down the oxalates because our microorganisms within our gut has shifted due to an exogenous bad boy, which is glyphosate. We'll get to that in a minute. But these oxalates are helping to create aspergillus and aspergillus helps to increase the oxalate load. And so oxalates are really, we know oxalates in the past in terms of kidney stones, right. stones which can, which are basically oxalate crystals. But now we know that high oxalates can, they're contributory to exacerbating autism because of how they affect neurotransmission, dopamine, serotonin, epinephrine, all of those uh, neurotransmitters. So we're creating this perfect storm through our food supply. And I'm, a, I'm a, a disruptor even in the functional space because a lot of our brethren and uh, colleagues, sisters, are in the past, and myself included, was like pro-sulfur, pro-oxalate, but I have changed because our macrocosm has changed as well. And so nuts, which almonds and, and, and nuts can be oxalates. I had one client literally tell me, you're right, Terry, nuts were making nuts. Wow, yeah. <laughs> they were really facilitating a disruption in her, in her biology. I get asked all the time, what's one product that I just can't live without when it comes to maintaining my own health and longevity? And my answer is something you've actually heard me mention on several episodes. It's called mitochondrial complex, and it's pretty much the Cadillac of multivitamins. And it's packed with antioxidants, including three key players, acetyl-L-carnitine, alpha-lipoic acid, and N-acetylcysteine. 
Think of a steam engine that requires coal to be continually shoveled into the furnace to power the train forward. Acetyl-L-carnitine does that for your body by shoveling short-chain fatty acids into your cells to provide your body with energy. This is an absolutely essential task to keeping you running. However, what's a byproduct of fire? You guessed it, smoke. Unfortunately, in this analogy, smoke from fire equals free radicals. To combat those free radicals, other antioxidants are needed, and that's where alpha-lipoic acid and N-acetylcysteine come in. Together, they scavenge free radicals and help boost and recharge glutathione, the most potent antioxidant in the body. To top it off, mitochondrial complex also contains a little bit of green tea extract, broccoli seed extract with sulforaphane, and even resveratrol. Research has shown that when athletes and individuals that are under stress begin taking this product, they are less likely to get sick as they're giving their body what it needs to conquer those stressors. Who doesn't need protection from stress and cellular damage at this time? I certainly do. I take this product every day. If you're interested in learning more about how mitochondrial complex can help support you living a longer, healthier life, check out my blog post on why antioxidants are important found at yourlongevityblueprint.com forward slash why dash antioxidants dash are dash important or in chapter four of my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. To get 10% off our mitochondrial complex, just use code energy when checking out at yourlongevityblueprint.com. Now let's get back to the show. Now, when you think of preparing some of the foods that have oxalates in them, like beans, like I, I know if you use a, a pressure cooker, you're going to reduce the lectins. Will you also reduce the oxalates by doing that or not? Not really. I mean, oxalates Shoot. are inherent in there. And then one of the worst ones, I call it killer kale. So kale is both oxalate and sulfur rich. And it's also very, very heavy in, it's a sponge for pesticides, you know, so it really carries a lot of toxins. So buy organic if you're going to eat it. And and I, I do want to say to the listeners too, although we're talking about all these things you can't eat, I know that in your with your method and what I do with my patients is we do look at one's genes because some individuals can have some organic kale, right? We're not saying everyone should never touch kale or should never touch beans. I believe that's not what you're saying. We, we very much need to focus on once <laughs> I treat the biochemical individuality of that patient. And so I have had kidney stones, so I, I have looked into if I have genes that can increase <laughs> the predisposition to making kidney stones. And so there are four different genes I look at with my patients to see if they're they're at increased risk. And so some of those individuals, yes, of course, need to be on a, a lower kale or lower oxalate diet, but not everyone needs to be. Not everyone. And as a matter of fact, we will change over the course of our lifetime. As a matter of fact, one of our clients from this morning who happens to have the Sulox gene and the Hoga gene and the, um, and the CBS gene right now, she's, she's had a baby. And she also has the MTHFR C677T polymorphism, which goes to methylation and biosynthesis. So she's fat malabsorbed and she's recycling estrogen. So in her case, I'm saying eat a bunch of cruciferous vegetables right now because they impart DIM which helps to metabolize estrogen and, and upregulate phase one liver detoxification. So in the past, before she was estrogen dominant, sulfur was not her friend, but now it is. And so things change, things change. But here, as we're, we're in the Washington, D.C. area, we're going into the fall where the leaves fall and so does, and mold lives. And so we say, you know, eat counter seasonally. If you're in a high mold environment, and you have certain genes in that season, myself included, I have all the bad genes, bad, the polymorphisms. <laughs> I stay away right now because it's going to affect me. Sure, sure. Let's transition to sulfur. 
we still got to go back to glyphosate, but let's talk about sulfur a little bit here. So how would one know if they did have poor sulfur metabolism? Like what symptoms or reactions to, to foods may they have? So sulfur we've linked in this practice to irritable bowel, to Crohn's, to ulcerative colitis. 73% of RA has been linked, RA being rheumatoid arthritis, has been linked to an impaired sulfur processing capacity. Endocrine function, also mental health, there's certain genes that will affect, again, neurotransmissions. This is the bio-beta-synthase, the CBS gene, which I call central broadcasting station, in terms of how that is such a, a big gene in impaired sulfur process. Sure. I, I also tell patients if you eat sulfur-rich foods and then you really smell like sulfur, then you probably can't metabolize it very well, right? <laughs> yeah, we do the asparagus test. If you can smell asparagus on the way out, more than likely, you have some issues processing your sulfur. Sure. And sulfur is found in a lot of foods. Some of you are alluding to like the cruciferous vegetables. Now, there's a time and place where some people actually need more fruits and vegetables that have the sulfur in them. And then there's a time and place where if you have these genetic variations like you have, it sounds like you should probably limit the, those sulfur-rich vegetables. Exactly. And, you know, P5P, which is a form of B6, is really good for the metabolism of sulfur and oxalates. I've also developed my own supplement that has watermelon, cilantro, and sea salt. And we've just had tremendous success in managing sulfur and oxalate metabolism, especially in celiacs, because we're finding in every one of my celiacs, they have impaired sulfur and oxalate metabolism. It, it attacks the gut. Wow. Very interesting. Okay, let's go back to glyphosate. So most of my listeners probably know what glyphosate is, but can you, can you tell us why glyphosate is so bad? Yeah, glyphosate is really a bad, 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 bad. <laughs> so glyphosate is the active ingredient in the herbicide round. And the brilliant work of Dr. Stephanie Seneff, a biochemist at MIT, has proven that glyphosate is an imposter. It creates, it becomes an analog to glycine. And glycine is an amino acid so important in the making of hydrochloric acid, which is super important in how we break down protein and how that hydrochloric acid unlocks the enzymes secreted by the pancreas, all of our pepsin and trypsin and peptidase and, and so forth. And so it's impaired our body's ability to digest protein. It also acts as an analog to L-serine, which is so important for mental health. And then it has impaired the body's ability to convert sulfur to its wonderful end product of sulfate. We get stuck in this kind of spin cycle and these vegetables, which used to be so healthy for us, are now becoming potentially our enemies. And I can speak to this personally. My genes have not changed, of course, but my ability to digest these sulfur processing compounds has because the glyphosate load, even if we are organic, Senef notes that there's cross-contamination. Our water supply is carrying it. We, it's really hard to get away from the glyphosate. And then the last thing the glyphosate does is that it has somehow impaired our body's ability to produce the microorganisms in our 
microbiome, which metabolize oxalates. So it has just far-reaching, far-reaching negative impacts on our microbiology within our gut. But then when all of those things happen, then we inadvertently can express those genes that then exacerbate the problem for us. And, you know, to Ben Lynch's brilliant work is that, and we've seen this in our practice where you can have dirty genes. So even though you may not exhibit the gene polymorphism, you're acting like you do. So we have to marry their genetic blueprint to their current state of health and symptomology and see if in some cases they could be experiencing that situation. I like how you say that current state of health because I do think that does determine how we can eat, right? So when our health, when we're in good health and under less stress, a lot of our our genetic, we'll say defects or variations are not necessarily going to be significant for us. And then there are going to be times in our life where they're extremely significant for us. So yeah, our, our current state of health can determine how we need to be eating, but we all need to be eating well most of the time anyways. <laughs> um, I've heard that you have visited, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Joe Salatans, Polyface Farms. Yes. In a farm in Virginia. He's been on so many documentaries, so I've seen him, you know, for for years. But how what was that experience like and what he's doing? Incredible. I attended the last the last ever lunatics tour. <laughs> and there were people from I believe 30 countries. Wow. Obviously pre-COVID, they were there were 1,200 of us gathered for wow. a full day and really understanding how he created. He, con- he really transformed this barren piece of property in Swoop, Virginia, which is near Charlottesville, into this utopia for animals. And the chickens, how he doesn't let them, they're, they're free range, truly free range for all of their lives, but they rotate and how their excrement is actually repopulating the nourishment of the soil. So he had the animals becoming part of the solution in terms of what their byproducts were. And how their their pigs were foraged, which effectively, I believe that his pigs are like wild boar. And pigs have uh, yeah. been known to be dirty, but it actually has a very high amino acid leucine, which is super antiviral. So when I cheat, if you will, as a wild and not eat non wild, I can very much tolerate pork, especially his pork, where they're eating pine cones and pine needles, and they're foraging in the in the woods. And so it was really beautiful to see how much love was poured into the land and the animals and how respectful they were treated during their lifetime. When I read Omnivore's Dilemma, where he was quoted and featured, I wept. And that was, my gosh, almost 15 years ago, where I do believe we're meant to be opportunistic carnivores. That's why we have our canines. Not all of us. And again, we're our current state of health. I'm not naturally a vegan, but I needed to be vegan when I was really ill. And so using that dynamic and philosophy, I think we can navigate longevity handily, understanding what our body is saying at the time and why it's saying it. Sure. That's a great feedback mechanism. Joe Rogan has an amazing podcast with him that any of, if any of the listeners want to listen to a long podcast, <laughs> he, I mean, he talks about what he's doing and it's, it's truly amazing. So I encourage you to listen to that. Let's go back to poop for a minute. So poop is important because we need that poop in our soil so that our soil can produce <laughs> food rich in nutrients. So 
at which we know our soils become very, very depleted these days. So not just talking about poop, but also gas. I want to talk about the methane from cows <laughs> leading to higher CO2 levels in the air that some individuals are so concerned about. I want to ask about your theory on that and why you think that has all, all of a sudden become a problem when we've had cows you know, on this earth for a long time. Yeah, so I, I do believe that there has been a significant change and it's because cows are herbivores. They're meant to feed on grass. They're not meant to feed on corn. And so when we are feeding them corn in their own, which is animal byproducts, they are no longer able to properly digest and metabolize their food source. And so they are gassing, off-gassing, truly. Think about when we can't digest something, we have flatulence. You know, people think that they're supposed to flatulate daily. Well, I can tell you, if you're really poop talks, I got, you know, I say, let's talk poop and let it, let poop talk to you. And, you know, your, your, your stool should be a certain color, a certain consistency. It should not have a massive odor. You know, mm-hmm. if you have gas, it should not be, it should not be uh, odiferous. Mm-hmm. And it really shouldn't be gassing. Other, otherwise, you're having some level of indigestion and fermentation, potentially putrefaction. So my personal theory, albeit not yet proven, is that we have, we have really done a number on our animals in the way that we treat and feed them uh, in a way that is so contributing to the carbon footprint. Sure. All right. Let's go back to the Cochrane method. So what is the Cochrane method? So the Cochrane method is a bioindividual methodology rooted in biochemistry and quantum biology and biophysics and musculoskeletal in nutrition. And I use my adapted form of applied kinesiology to allow the body to inform the practitioner as to what exactly is going on. And what I love about this methodology, it's in real time. And I have a naturopathic doctor that works with us. And we work very collaboratively with doctors across the country, actually. And, you know, when we, when we collaborate in, with them and we do the, the saliva, the blood, the stool, all the, you know, all the bells and whistles, in many cases, if not in all cases, the muscle testing is corroborated by the other testing. And what the Cochrane method seeks to do is to look to a footprint of genetic possibility and then the four portals of environment, which is food and toxins and heavy metals, food being the big one, pathogenic load, which are the viruses, not just IgM, real virus, you know, that is, oh, I got a new viral infection, but the reactivation of viruses the overgrowth of that bacteria, fungi, parasites. We have the emotional piece, which that's the fat piece of the third tenet of wildatarianism, where we know that when we secrete epinephrine, also known as adrenaline, it literally in our biology, microbiology, will increase the pathogenicity of our organisms, making them bullies. It increases fat metabolism impairment it leaks the gut. It just has a lot of deleterious effects. So the emotional piece is a big piece. And one of the things that didn't make the book, which is we now know that there's a human biofield, which is a field of information that lives outside of us. I think proven by 
a biophysicist and, and I have just done many studies on that, on how our energy really impacts our DNA expression and what, what our thoughts are so powerful. And then the last thing is a physical impact. If you are hit, if you are injured, if there's trauma to the body, it can elicit a cascade of changes. You have just launched the Global Sustainable Health Institute. So tell us what that is. Well, I'm really proud of that because for many years I've been asked, Terry, what are you an expert in? <laughs> and we're like, well, am I an expert in autoimmunity? Am I an expert in Lyme? Am I an expert in Hashimoto's or fertility or mental health? And really what we realized is that we, we are an expert in body <laughs> uh, because you can't separate one from the other. And for many, many years, I've been asked by practitioners of all kinds, MDs, NDs, ODs, chiropractors, you name it, to shadow my practice because it's a pioneering work. The results prove it. And so I finally decided, and it was really interesting, it was before the novel season came into being, but right before that happened, I was nudged to really teach my methodology. And so the, the Global Sustainable Health Institute is a platform from one-to-one and -one clinical practice to one-to-many where the Cochrane Method will be taught. We're, we're right now in the early stages of partnering with a wonderful human out of Canada where we're going to teach Lyme through the lens of the Cochrane Method to, and we're putting a practitioner model together. And then it's really taking and scaling this wildatarian approach to institutions that, you know, now more than ever, immunity is the thing, you know, mm -hmm. immunity and, and longevity is the long game. If we do a short-term approach to food and, and our, how we live our lives, it's short-term and it's results as well. So we have to seek to be sustainable in our health. And as you stated earlier, and we're uh, completely aligned as longevity starts in the womb. And we have seen this through the uh, babies <laughs> that we've taken through our process for a decade or more. And women that have been told they're, forget it, you're infertile and you will never have a child. And now they've born children healthfully without any external intervention, hormonal intervention. And these children, if you look at them and compare them to their siblings, they're more robust. They don't have the allergies. We have a child now that the mom got pregnant at 43 and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, we come with a warning label. <laughs> And her son, she has three boys now. Her other two sons are anaphylactic to uh, molds and nuts and all sorts of things and uh, trees. And this little guy, William, he's like a little tank. He's now going to be two. And there's zero things that are, you know, he's not gotten sick. He's not allergic to anything. And because when she got pregnant, we married the genetic blueprint of she and her husband. And she ate to the intersection of the genetic blueprint of the parents. And this little guy is amazing. And so that's proof positive that we just had another one, our first client again, the one that's now having a little estrogen dominance. Her child, her first child was on the spectrum. This child is so robust. And when he eats outside of his genetic blueprint, it's an immediate feedback loop, but that mom knows. So it's, there's no guessing. And this little guy is just, just thriving. He's, he'll be a year old next month. And there's, he's not been sick once. Wonderful. So let's talk about what we can eat on the wildatarian diet. So can you kind of break down grains and proteins? Tell us what you eat every day. And I know you're eating for your genetic, you know, blueprint, but tell us what is included on the wildatarian diet. 
So the wildatarian diet is going to be based on four major archetypes that I have developed. It's either going to be a basic wildatarian where you're just low on amyloids. And I cannot stress enough how important that we stay away from things that make amyloid plaques or amyloid fibrils that we're ingesting. We have to really reduce that. You can be a low sulfur wildatarian, which is what I am. So you're going to avoid those cruciferous vegetables and a lot of egg yolk that also is sulfuric and garlic and onion. I can do cooked garlic and onion. And I can do broccoli and cauliflower as well, but I'm not going to do them every day. And I'm certainly not going to juice with kale because that, I've tried that before and I've literally gotten sick. And then there's a low fat wildatarian, uh, which is if you're eating, if you have certain genetic predispositions where you're not breaking down fats, then anything that's high fat, such as even salmon, you know, can really clog up the works from a hormonal perspective, from a neurotransmitter perspective, from a fat perspective. So we're going to go lower fat. Um, and then the, um, there's a low fat, low sulfur wildatarian, which you're going to incorporate that. And then we have a little tail, which is the low oxalate. So what do I eat? Well, this morning I had a smoothie that was made with avocado and mango and some, um, fish collagen. And for lunch, I'm going to have bison with fresh lettuce and uh, heirloom tomatoes. Last night I had lamb with some carrots and some uh, roasted potatoes. Uh, I went out to dinner, but that was at the restaurant and it was available and it was completely wild. So what we, what we tend to say is if you stay away from the glyphosate, which is found in gluten, if you stay away from the mycotoxins, which is found in the, the certain beans and, and uh, nuts, and if you stay away from the sulfur, if you have that issue, that what I do instead is I gravitate towards my squash. Love all kinds of squash in terms of my vegetables, my eggplant. They used to think that nightshades, which include eggplant, tomato, and peppers, and potatoes was a problem. Well, in my practice, we've seen it's really the sulfur and the oxalate and kidney conditions. And so I, I eat liberally my eggplant, my, my peppers, roasted peppers, my tomatoes of all kinds, potatoes here and there, but more, more likely sweet potatoes. I love my cucumber. I love my cilantro. It's such a great detoxifier, all kinds of lettuce, but not arugula or kale, but my bib, my Boston, my lamb. And then the fruit papaya is amazing because it has happened and it's a great digestive aid. I don't do well with citrus because it, it acidifies me. But again, mango, papaya, I limit my berries because of the oxalates, but I love right now we're in peach season. That's incredible. But I don't eat a lot of, I don't eat a lot of cantaloupe because that's high milk, but I do eat a lot of watermelon. See, that sounds amazing, but I have fructose intolerance. So a lot of the things you said, I cannot have when you're saying watermelon and peach and squash and, you know, a lot of those, <laughs> I'm thinking that sounds delicious. But so, you know, if someone had fructose intolerance, they can't necessarily consume those. But that's also why having a practitioner to work with you <laughs> is so invaluable to help you personalize your diet. No, it's absolutely right. And so what's, what, what we say is there's no one food or supplement for everyone. And right. For you could be poison for me and vice versa. Right. So, you know, for me, I do low legume. I usually, I try to do uh, pinto or what I have found that the pinto and the great northern tend to be on some level. They have some antiviral properties. I, black beans are high oxalate. So and I'm Cuban, so I grew up on black beans, but I have to be respectful. But if I, what I find too is if you pair, so if I pair my black beans with mango, which is really high in vitamin A, which really helps the epithelial lining of the gut and high in iodine, I can actually do that pairing and be okay. 
Hmm. So sometimes it's just not that one food. It's like if you pair it with something your body really loves, then sure. you can get away with it. But if you do two fringe foods, I call I call the foods for our clients. You have center lane foods and those you're gonna you can drive down that lane every day. And then you have your fringe foods and you're gonna be really respectful of those fringe foods. But if you pair a fringe with a center lane, you should be okay unless there's something else going on. But don't do a bunch of fringe foods on the same day because your body's gonna go, oh crap. You know, and I eat wild. So I'm lucky. My lamb, my bison, lamb, bison, elk, venison. And where do you get these? So where where are you finding these? If you don't, I'm in Iowa. So, I mean, I do have some farming relatives who could occasionally get me some wild game. <laughs> but where, where, are, where am I going to find? I can find lamb. Where am I going to find some of these? Are there certain companies that you you work with or recommend? question. And the major grocery stores do carry lamb. They carry Cornish game hen. So that would be a better choice. Corn, I think you, I've heard you say before, Cornish hens or turkey are safer than chicken. Yes, absolutely. And this little guy who's just ready to turn a year old, his mother says he loves the Cornish hens. He actually sleeps better and it's high in tryptophan. So it's helping his sleep and he feels really satiated. But chicken, again, with that high potential amyloid burden, we don't do that. But in your grocery store, so you can get ground bison, you can get lamb, you can get the Cornish hen. You can get the fish. Sometimes, you know, Whole Foods has a lot of wild of everything. Sure. Wild fish. And then there are two major providers that I know of, Dartanian Foods, which ships to 50 states overnight. Blackwing Farms out of, I believe it's Wisconsin also, but Thrive Market. You could get, avail yourself of some potentially good fish. And then Vital Choice. Vital Choice has some really great wild fish and shellfish that your listeners could avail themselves of. Even in COVID, I've been traveling a little bit and I just was on the West Coast and I navigated, you know, I navigate my wild vegetarian palate and lifestyle. When you travel, it's not perfect, but then I'm taking my supplements again, you know, supplements help mitigate, but I'm going to be mm-hmm. I'm taking my B6, I'm taking my wild lights. Every day I'm taking a quercetin because not only is it an antihistamine, but it's been proven to lower oxalate loads. So we have to marry the supplements with the food and not all supplements are great for everyone. When I was high viral glutathione, which is thought to be such a powerful antioxidant, the master antioxidant actually was really, really bad for me. I took one dose of glutathione. I thought I'd been shocked by electrical system. It really affected my neurology. Now I can take glutathione and glutathione it has been touted to be you know, really great. It has some viral mitigating properties. So I take it now regularly. My body couldn't handle it then, but it can handle it now. And so again, you know, to your listeners, as we become sustainable in our health profile, there's a lot more that we can do and we can dance with a bounty of foods that we may not have been able to touch before. Sure. Well, I'm happy to hear that you are back to health. I want to hear about your son though. So how is your son? Oh, he just moved to Richmond, Virginia. He just started working for AmeriCorps. I'm really proud of him. So my son, that was, he's 26 now. He has no residue of asthma. He has, he's robust. He ended up being a gold medalist in junior Olympics with karate. He grew to five feet 11. He was really an academic and a singer, songwriter, athlete. So he, he's done, you know, extremely well and, What's so beautiful, Stephanie, is that he's so tuned into his body. When he comes in and he sees my naturopath, just because I'm his mom, 
uh, to our practice, you know, they have roundly given me feedback on, boy, he really knows his stuff. He really knows his body. And, you know, he's not taking a course in it, but he's just, he's lived it. And so that's one of the things that we seek to do in our practice. And I believe we, we have succeeded is we are educators and we educate our clients. So they are empowered and informed and they understand why. And they can pull themselves off the ledge in most cases because they're like, oh yeah, now I know if I ate that, I felt terrible. So there's not so much static in the body that they're completely confused. Great to hear. Great to hear. Well, tell us where listeners can connect with you. Of course, happy to. So you can connect with me through globalsustainableinstitute.com. You can connect with me through terrycochran.com. And of course, my book is on Amazon. And we have a private practice here in the DC area. We have the Wildetarian book and the Heal and Seal program. We have many programs on our website if you can't come see us. Uh, We have a detox program. We have a meal prep program. We have the the more kind of the signature program of the Wildetarian diet, which is the Heal and Seal. We can heal and seal our gut. I say we can eat rocks. It's a metaphor, but it's true. You know, we can really be robust in our in our gut biome and its integrity. Then we have a much broader place from which to support our our nourishment. And we have I'm all over social media. So I will put a plug in for your book there. Also, it does include several recipes. So if you're kind of wondering how am I going to you know cook some of these these foods, she, she does have you do have recipes uh, included in your book, which is great, very helpful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and shedding light on something I had a lot of curiosity about. I'm happy you got to clarify some of my questions today, and I won't probably be eating chicken for a while. (laughs) But thank you so much for talking about oxalates and sulfur and glyphosate and amyloids, things that many of my listeners probably didn't know much about. So we appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Of course, my great pleasure. That concludes another episode of your Longevity Blueprint podcast. The wildetarian diet sounds like something we all should be considering. And while I knew I needed to avoid glyphosate, I didn't realize where amyloids were found, which clearly we need to be avoiding too. Interestingly, my mom always cooked Cornish hens for Thanksgiving growing up, so I'm going to have to thank her for choosing a lower amyloid poultry option. I bet she didn't even realize it. For those of you who want to learn more about the Wildetarian Diet, Terry is offering her Wild Detox program for free to listeners. I'll post the link to the program in the show notes. Be sure to check out my book, Your Longevity Blueprint. And if you aren't much of a reader, you're in luck. You can now take my course online where I walk you through each chapter in the book. Plus, for a limited time, the course is 50% off. Check this offer out at yourlongevityblueprint.com and click the course tab. One of the biggest things you can do to support the show and help us reach more listeners is to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I read all of the reviews and would truly love to hear your suggestions for show topics, guests, or how you're applying what you've learned on the show to create your own longevity blueprint. The podcast is produced by the team at Counterweight Creative. As always, thanks so much for listening and remember, wellness is waiting. The information provided in this podcast is educational. No information provided should be considered to be or used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always consult with your personal medical authority.